you very much, Beth. Um, I realize there's quite a lot of Bible there. Hopefully it will make more sense after I finish talking. Um, if that's not the case, then I apologize. Um, I don't know about you, but I've definitely found that there is something a little bit different um, being about Christians. Um, as students, uh, in January, we get the joy of complaining about exams, but then we do actually get the gift of a whole week's holiday with nothing, like nothing, no obligations. It's amazing. Um, so I've spent it um, visiting some family and catching up with some friends, um, done a little bit of a trip. It's been really nice. Um, but one of the things that I've noticed is... Um, just different attitudes uh, and, I guess, ways of thinking amongst uh, different people, depending on um, where they are on their walk with God. Um, and a little bit of what we see in what Jesus said uh, in his passage, talking about salt and light, is talking very much about being distinctive, what it means to look different, I guess. Um, so the question I think that poses is, what does it look like to be a distinctive follower of Jesus? You might have heard the phrases um, light of the world and salt of the earth. Um, I, I don't know if we always grasp what those pictures mean. Um, salt is kind of a bit of a, seems like a bit of a weird thing to say in some ways. Um, and there's quite a lot of aspects to it. Uh, we use salt, obviously, to like add flavor to food. Um, but in the ancient world, it was also um, a preservative. Um, obviously, it's like one of the best without having access to like a fridge. Uh, it's a great way of being able to keep food. Um, and it was also uh, an important element of fertilizer um, to use in crops. Um, and salt is also the root of the word salary. So there's a whole bunch of salt facts for you to, to enjoy. Um, the idea of losing saltiness can seem a bit weird when we have, like, we're used to salt coming as, I don't know, like salt powder or whatever you want to put. I should know this. Like, I've, I do science things. Um, and so it sounds weird, the idea that salt could lose saltiness. Uh, but they reckon it's probably because um, around the time of Jesus, salt would often be rock salt. So it would be salt mixed in with like, rocks as you get it from the ground. And so you could use up the salt in these rocks, and then all you'd have is just like a bunch of rocks. It wouldn't be so great. Um, but maybe it's also meant to sound a bit like a contradiction, to emphasize that by sticking with Jesus, we can't lose our saltiness. That's not a thing that can happen. I don't know. Anyway, there's some salt facts, like I said. Um, and then the idea of light, light of the world. The Bible uses this all over the place. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the light that shines in the darkness that can never be put out. Um, and Paul uses the imagery as well of being children of light in a dark generation. And this passage uh, in Matthew falls like at an interesting time. Um, it's just after, it's as part of Jesus' Sermon of the Mount, his big block of teaching, um, that he does towards the beginning of his ministry. Um, and it just comes just after um, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. And just after this, he will then go on um, to talk about the law as it was understood um, by the Jews from the Old Testament, but expanding it, I guess, taking it to its fullest extent. He has not come to abolish all that has come before, but he is to fulfill it and explain it in all its fullness. And these things are often very challenging, especially to us today, uh, but also at the time. I think it's one of the things I was reflecting on is that Jesus' audience probably wouldn't have been surprised to have been called the light of the world. I, don't, I mean, I know that 
in my life, I'm not often referred to as the light of the world. That isn't someone says to me, it's like, I'm queuing for the bus or whatever. Um, but probably for, for the audience at the time, they would be familiar because it was one of the images used in the Old Testament as um, the people of Israel. Um, they were to be a light to the nations. Um, and he talks about being a city on a hill. And Jerusalem in the Psalms is often described as the city on the hill that will give light to the nations. So I guess his audience would be used to the idea that, um, that the way they were to live was to be distinctive. It was to, um, to show what God's character was like to the nations that lived around them. Um, not because there was anything special about them, really. As, I mean, if you've ever read any of the Bible, you will know that they got it wrong m- way more times than they ever got it right. But that's also to show God's character, that he loves in spite of what we do and not because of what we do much of the time. And so in this idea of the way that they were to live in their civil society, um, in the ways that they related to one another, was to be distinctive to the world. Um, And we, as followers of Jesus now, sort of follow in those footsteps. Obviously, um, much I don't know if people still think this, we don't live really in a Christian country, and that's not really the point. The point is it's more in the way that we relate to one another and in those ways that we are distinctive. So what are these distinctive actions that will bring glory to God that are in line with the law and prophets that fit with this Old Testament idea of what it means as the people of Israel are living today? I guess there's lots of different ways that you could think about this, but we're going to look at this through the lens of the first passage that Beth read to us. Um, from Isaiah 58. And this comes in almost a completely different thing, you've got to imagine, like all the scenery in the background changing. Um, Isaiah, the prophet, is speaking, writing um, to the people of Israel, um, probably about the time um, when they'd either been exiled from the land where they'd been given or just returned. Um, And it was a really uncertain time for them in many ways. Um, But their complaints were that they were doing these things, they were praying, they were fasting, they were doing the things that God was, had told them, that if you do these things, then good like, stuff will happen, but nothing was happening. And Isaiah's challenge is saying that they're doing these outwardly-looking, pious deeds that if you looked on, you go, oh, yes, they're definitely people who know God. But it wasn't reflected in the way that they structured their society, that they related to one another. And that, although it's, it's all very well fasting to... to sacrifice your food or your money and your time for God. But if that comes at the cost of how you treat other people, then it's, it's meaningless. True fasting is loosening the chains of injustice, setting the oppressed free, sharing food with the hungry, and providing for the poor. In other words, holiness is not some magical state of being, but it is expressed, it is shown through loving actions. And that's the way that it's, it seems to be defined. And it's really challenging you know, it definitely challenges me because I can think it's much easier to do sit down, I could, you know, in theory, pray for like 20 minutes <laughs> and then I've, I've made it. But actually, if that comes at the cost of, of how I relate to people, if I'm not seeking um, justice, then it's almost meaningless. And this commitment to justice is, I think, one of the most important things from Jesus spilling into the lives of Christians that makes them distinctive. I mean, as justice, I can find a really hard concept to get your head around. So I'm going to use this one um, from an American Christian author, his church leader called Eugene Cho. He wrote an 
awesome book about justice. Um, and he uses this definition. Justice is the act of restoring something to fullness after it has, it has been harmed. I'll say that again. Justice is the act of restoring something to fullness after it has been harmed. And in this way, justice touches so many things and so many ways that God is at work in people's lives. It's looking at all of a person um, in their personality, in their way of being. Um, It relates to our sins and the ways we have messed up, but it relates to our physical situation as well. And the idea of equality and it's huge and what's interesting is that it then relates justice to not what is justice but who is justice you know if we're restoring something to fullness then we've got to have something to restore it to if you imagine you're restoring an old painting um, we're not just making it look like whatever we want to but we're making it look like what it was always intended to look like and so when we think of justice as restoring things to fullness it is restoring Um, the world, people, creation, to God's original vision and intention for it. In the story of Genesis, when God creates it, he says that he is making man and women in his own image. And it is that that justice relates to, restoring people to the image of God um, that is within them, that he always made them to be. And so this idea of God, God as creator and us as images of God all sort of ties in Um, to this feeling. I think what's really interesting is that it's it's quite hard to get our heads around and often we can think of justice as maybe being quite a political issue. I really like something that Justin Welby said, that um, our faith doesn't fit neatly onto a a left-right political axis. You know, this commitment to justice is something that is seen whatever we we may think in how it looks to come about practically in some ways, but we are to be committed to it. This passage from Isaiah, um, I really like. um, And it's one that ties heavily um, into the vision of Just Love. Um, For those of you who don't know, um, Just Love is a a nationwide Christian student group. Um, And we have a group here in Bath, based up in Bath Uni, of which I am a part. And we exist to inspire and release Christian students to seek this Jesus-centered concept of justice. And we're born around a desire, I guess, to see beyond the student bubble definitely a very real thing and into the lives of the communities that we live in and the lives of those all around the world and it's definitely been really affecting to me Um, one of the things that we've been involved in in this past semester is um, helping to run a homeless outreach on a Sunday evening Um, after church we go out with some teas and coffees and thermoses and stuff and just try and find people who who are in need um, not necessarily to provide their needs but just to chat to them, to get to know them, to be a presence there um, where maybe there wasn't before. And there was one evening we went and um, we ran into a couple of guys, one called Sean, um, who out on the street had absolutely nothing. It was, a, it was a drizzly, wet, cold night, and he was looking for somewhere to stay. And so we said we'd try and find somewhere. And thus began a trek uh, around all the places in Bath which we thought might be able to take him. And there was, there was no one who would. He had, he had no identification on him because it had been stolen. He had no money. He had no address. Um, he had nothing on him other than the clothes on his back. And repeatedly, um, places for, for various well-meaning and well-intentioned reasons wouldn't take him. And we were left at the end of the evening with um, a guy who, who seemed totally broken, honestly, and it was really hard because 
there was nothing more that we had to offer in some ways. Um, we had been the first people, he'd been in Bath for about three weeks, and we'd been the first people who, had, he said, had shown any interest in him or in his situation at all. Um, and it was really hard because there was nothing more we could do. I just had to go back to my, my normal life. I had to go to lectures the next morning, knowing that there would be people like him and many others, not just here in Bath, but across the country and across the world, for whom life was going to be really hard. And it's, it's really challenging. The truth is that justice is not easy. It's not clean. And if it looks like it is, then we've probably been sold the wrong deal. Justice means being involved in the mess and the brokenness of people's lives so that God is able to do the restoration. So, it's, of course, it's going to look messy. But what's amazing is that this idea of restoration and justice is rooted in the story of Jesus. From the beginning of his time on earth, Jesus is rooted in the story of those in poverty and on the edge of society. He was born to a family in disgrace, a teenage pregnancy where her betrothed husband was clearly not the father. And then from the outside, it looks as though Mary has either cheated on Joseph, or she's been raped, and which either way comes with stigma and suspicion from her community where she's grown up. Jesus is born into poverty in a stable. He flees with his family at a young age to Egypt, um, essentially as a refugee, which is where he spends some of the first years of his life. He grows up as a carpenter, likely illiterate, uh, as that would be the reality for most ordinary folk at that time. He spent three years in his mid-30s traveling around as an itinerant preacher, relying on the kindness of those who supported him. And Jesus invited everyone to come and eat at his table. Tax collectors, prostitutes, those who so-called righteous and proper Jews wouldn't associate it with it, have nothing to do with them. Jesus ultimately he embodied both God's incredible holiness and his overflowing grace and mercy. And he saw beyond racial divisions, gender divisions, class divisions. He ultimately died a criminal's death on the cross, naked and alone, deserted by those who had followed him. But three days later, he was alive, resurrected, defeating the powers of death and injustice that had held him down and held us down, and allowing us to follow in his footsteps of those for whom the, the sting and the power of sin and death is forever broken. His followers formed the church, Jesus' bride, made up of broken people from across society who frequently got it wrong in ways that would probably shock us today, but was still a picture of transformed society and ways of relating to one another. And this is all rooted in that Old Testament story of Israel, the people of Israel, chosen by God, not for anything special, and who repeatedly fail, fail miserably, but God endures and loves them throughout it all. They were called in their way of life and structured society to look different, to look after the poor, the widow, and the orphan, because that is who God loves. And we, as followers of Jesus today, follow in those footsteps and participate in the continuation of this story. As bearers and carriers of the Holy Spirit, we are to, as Jesus said, love God with everything we are and to love others. This might all feel like a distant story, far away from Bath in 2017, but it's one in which we are part in the grand narrative of God creating, loving, and recreating the world he has made. So what could this distinctive life, committed to God's justice, look like for you and for me? It could be being involved with one of the charities that are based here in the city. People like um, Genesis, Julian House, Christians Against Polity, Poverty, and probably many, many others that I don't know about, but are there and are doing fantastic work. 
or about where we commit our money and our consumption? Does our diet reflect God's justice? That can be a really funny thing to think about, but it's true. It involves all of our lives, the way that we spend our money, the coffee we buy, the bananas we buy, the meat we do or we don't eat. All of this can reflect an idea of God's justice reflected in the way that we treat not only ourselves, but we engage with you know, the global processes of consumption. It could be in our conversations, whether that's our families or our friends or our neighbors or people on the bus or wherever we are. We take some of God's presence where we go to create community. You know, that's the heart of us as a community here at St. Matt's here, but we're also part of engaging that in the wider city as well. Laying down our lives, our passions, resources, energy, careers, dreams, to let Jesus lead in ways that will bring about his restoration. If you're a student, incidentally, then we'd love for you to be part of our conversations at Just Love. Um, But for all of us, the call is for us to be a presence and not an absence in this world. It can be easy for us as followers of Jesus to be known for what we don't do, for the things that we're against. But let's flip that. Let's be known by what we do do, the areas where we are involved, the areas we are engaged. That is what makes us distinctive. That's what makes us um, the salt of the earth, the light of the world in the world that we live in. It is our commitment to the things that we do, our advocacy, speaking for those who can't speak up, prayer, being at the foot of God's throne, asking for Um, the things for the people around us, being involved practically hands-on with our finances, with our time. This is what makes us distinctive salt and light people. I want to talk a little bit about Martin Luther King as a a final um, wrapping up bit. Martin Luther King was compelled by his faith in Jesus for all his actions in the civil rights movement. This aspect doesn't always fit nicely with a, a sort of a secular understanding of now of what who he was and what he did. It was interesting going looking at his page on Wikipedia, and the section on religion is remarkably short compared to the rest of it. But you read what it is, and it's his, it's, it says something along the lines of, like, in every speech he made, he referenced the Bible and Jesus, basically. So it's like, well, it's hard to not think that, that was probably quite important to him then. I don't think it's hard to capture how central the message of Jesus was to what he did, the way he spoke, and the methods that he advocated. Martin Luther King was, in the vein of many Christians throughout the ages, respected by some and hated by many. Even people who agreed uh, with some of the background principles behind the racial equality that he was espousing thought he was wrong to insist on restoration so actively, including many Christian leaders. In his letter, written in jail uh, in Birmingham, Alabama, he wrote this section. But though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, As I continued to think about the matter, I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And John Bunyan, I will stay in jail to the end of my days before I make a butchery of my conscience. And Abraham Lincoln, this nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. 
So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? In that dramatic scene on Calvary's Hill, three men were crucified. We must never forget that all three were crucified for the same crime, the crime of extremism. Two were extremists for immorality and thus fell below their environment. The other, Jesus Christ, was an extremist for love, truth, and goodness, and thereby rose above his environment. Perhaps the South, the nation, and the world are in dire need of creative extremists. Our distinctiveness as lights on a hill and as salt of the earth perhaps is for us to be creative, loving extremists for Jesus. And that might be just what we are in dire need of. I think it would be good um, for us as church together um, to acknowledge sort of a twofold aspect of this. Individually, we need God's justice in our lives. We are deeply broken people. I know that I, I can't speak for all of you, but I know I am. We need God's justice to be restoring us. But equally, we have a part to play in bringing it about in our world, in our streets, in our homes, in our communities, in our schools, in our families. So I think it'd be good. We'll just spend, um, I think, probably a couple of minutes reflecting on that um, and then come together and do something.